One of the sad realities of Christianity today is that it seems that there are some Christians who assume that we have to choose between being uncompromising or gracious. In other words, some Christians believe that it's impossible to be uncompromising in your convictions and gracious at the same time. Yet Scripture calls us to both. It really can't be an either-or for us. Let me show you what I mean by having us turn together to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 7. Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, or depending on your translation, graciousness or forbearance, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Our text is actually going to consist only of verse 5 for this message, but I wanted to read this entire section to establish the context of the words that we're going to consider in the message. Maybe you noticed as we read through these verses that this entire section is in a sense a call to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 2 and 3 you could say are a call to love. You remember Galatians 5, 22 and 23 by the way. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, etc., Well, verses 2 and 3 are a call to love because Paul says, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's basically a call to love. It's a call for these two women to love one another and to not be preoccupied with their own position, themselves, whatever the issue was that was causing division. So that is a call to love. Then, as we saw last week, verse 4 is a call to joy. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Then verses 6 and 7 are a call to peace. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So a call to love, a call to joy, a call to peace, and then verse 5 is a call to gentleness. Verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The word that is translated gentleness here in verse 5, at least in my translation, is a multifaceted word. It's it's one of those words that is difficult to translate over into English with just one word. That's why in the margin of my Bible, 
there are a couple other suggestions by way of translation. Let your gentleness be known to all. Let your graciousness be known to all. Let your forbearance be known to all. However you translate it, it's clearly a plea from Paul for sensitivity in relationships. Don't be abrasive. We could render this if we were just paraphrasing. Uh, Don't be a know-it-all. Don't be someone who's hard to get along with in life. Ask the Spirit of God to refine the rough edges of your personality. That's basically what Paul is calling for here in verse 5. It follows right on the heels of the command to rejoice always in verse 4. So we are to rejoice in the Lord always, but lest we mistake that command and think it means that we're just you know, bouncing off the walls all the time and we're obnoxious to people and abrasive and insensitive. Uh, That command in verse 4 is immediately followed with this command in verse 5 to let our gentleness or our graciousness, our forbearing spirit be known to all men. Beloved, this is the command that we really need to hear as conservative evangelical Christians. This is a command that we really need to hear as, if you like this term or take this term to yourself, as fundamentalists. I realize that the term fundamentalist has sort of maybe taken a little bit of a turn over the years. It used to be a very good term because it simply described a Christian who would not compromise the fundamentals of the faith. Things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the inspiration of Scripture. So a fundamentalist was someone who held to the fundamentals of the faith. But as I said, unfortunately, it's sort of uh, been adopted by some groups within Christianity that maybe we would not feel that comfortable identifying with. As someone has said, sadly, there are too many fundamentalists who are no fun, a lot of damn, and not much mental. Well, that's not the kind of fundamentalist that you want to be. So whatever you call yourself or however you identify yourself as a conservative, an evangelical fundamentalist, or just a Bible-believing Christian, this, this, is very, this is a very important command for us. It is so easy for us to slip into a mindset of defensiveness or an abrasive attitude because, frankly, we are often attacked due to our stand for the truth. And we're not only attacked from the world. Sometimes, if you just want to stand for what God's Word says, you're, sta- you're attacked by the church. So we, we, we need to be careful. It's, it's noble and commendable to stand for the truth. But there's no virtue in being abrasive or insensitive or hard to get along with or a know-it-all. Unfortunately, a lot of well-meaning Christians are like that. And experience shows that no, those who need to hear this the most are usually the least likely to hear it, right? I mean, that's the sad reality. That's just the way it is with insensitive people. Their insensitivity causes them not to hear what they ought to hear. It's the way it is with people who are abrasive. They don't listen when the Spirit of God calls them to be gracious and gentle and forbearing. Since that's the case, and since that is our tendency, let me be as straightforward as I can. This is for every one of us present. It's a challenge to my own heart, a challenge to your heart, a challenge to your life, to my life. Ask the Spirit of God. Regularly ask 
the Spirit of God to refine the rough edges of your personality. It's a very practical response to verse 5. Very practical application for every one of us. Then Paul, after giving us the exhortation or the command, he motivates us with the next phrase. He says, the Lord is at hand. This is fascinating. He is saying, you need to be gentle. You you need to be gracious. You you need to be forbearing. And remember, the Lord is at hand. The Lord sees The Lord knows how you relate to other people, how you get along with other people, what your personality is like. He sees when you are abrasive, when you are insensitive, when you are sharp with your words, sharp with a cutting tongue, or when you are harsh with your words. He sees. He knows. He is at hand. He is near, Paul says here in verse 5. Again, depending on your translation, the Lord is at Hand, the Lord is near. The Greek word near can have two meanings, just like the English word near. It can mean near in the sense of time, or it can mean near in the sense of space. For example, if I say to you, lunch is near, or dinner is near, I mean that it, it won't be very long until you have a meal. Lunch is near. It's, it's right around the corner. It's just a little while away. If I say, on the other hand, these flowers are near, I mean they are close in the sense of proximity. So the word near, whether in English or Greek, can be used either way or both ways. Which way does Paul have in mind as he writes these words in verse 5? It seems, for a variety of reasons, that he's referring to nearness in the sense of closeness and not time. In other words, the Lord is, he's close by he, he's with us. He's present. He, he views all of our interactions. This is a statement of God's omnipresence. God is with us. He's right with us, and he, he observes. He beholds all of our interactions. If we are gracious, gentle, forbearing, or if we are harsh, unloving, insensitive. So Paul seeks to motivate us to a gentleness by a statement of God's omnipresence. Maybe the best commentary on that truth is found in Psalm 139. So let's spend a little time there to reinforce what Paul is saying here uh, in in Philippians 4, 5 about the Lord's nearness or closeness. Psalm 139. This psalm contains some of the greatest and loftiest statements about God found anywhere in the Bible. Listen to these words while you're settling into Psalm 139. I quote, On January 7, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, opened his morning sermon as follows. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, the person, the work, the doings, and existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. 
It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation we say, I am but of a yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding... This subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. End quote. These words were spoken over a century ago by C.H. Spurgeon, who at that time incredibly, was only 20 years old. Dr. A.W. Tozer hit the nail on the head when he said this, quote, The low view of God entertained almost universally among us is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking, end quote. In other words... Your knowledge, your understanding, your view of God is the key to your life. Right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. In light of that, it's interesting to note some of the ways in which God is often viewed today. For example, some people see God as a gray-bearded old man who is out of touch with life. He exists, and he's somewhat wise, but because of his age, he's He's past his prime, and he just doesn't have it all together anymore. It's not an uncommon view of God. Some people see God as a kind grandfather whose job it is to give out gifts and goodies. Others see God as an angry judge who sits waiting to strike out in judgment as soon as he has any reason or excuse to do so. In fact, some who view God this way actually believe that he wants his creatures to blow it so he can have the pleasure of judging them. Some people see God as a sort of a cool dude who understands all of our shortcomings. An example of this is the person who refers to God as, quote, the man upstairs, or my good buddy in heaven, 
or my main man. Some people see God as a divine genie who is obligated to rescue everyone from trouble when he is called upon. Those are just some of the distorted concepts of God that are commonly embraced, and I'm sure you could add more to the list. But Psalm 139 helps to straighten out our concept of God, our view of God, and gives us a clear picture. Remember now, this is a psalm. It's a Hebrew song. This song has four stanzas to it. Each stanza consists of six verses. Stanza one is verses one through six. Stanza two is verses seven through 12. Stanza three is verses 13 through 18. And stanza four is verses 19 through 24. We're only going to take time to consider the first two stanzas in an overview fashion because they tie in with what Paul says there in Philippians 4 about the Lord being at hand, the Lord being near, the Lord being always present. So the theme of the first six verses is the omniscience of God. God knows everything. That theme is presented in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Lord, you know me. You know everything about me. You know everything about everything. That's the omniscience of God. The theme of the next six verses is the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere present. That theme is is presented in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? That is a statement of the omnipresence of God. The theme of the next six verses is the omnipotence of God. God is all-powerful. That theme is presented in the middle of verse 14. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows very well. Your works are amazing because of your ability, God, and your power, what you are able to do. Nothing is too hard for you. And then the theme of the last six verses is the holiness of God. That theme is presented in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. God is a holy God who righteously judges the wicked. And the the godly should not want to participate in the actions, the lifestyle of the wicked. That's basically what verse 19 is saying. Now, as I said, though, we're only going to really consider the first two stanzas because of the way they relate to Philippians 4 and what Paul uses to motivate us to graciousness or forbearance. The first two stanzas, remember, the theme, our God is omniscient and our God is omnipresent. Our God knows everything, knows all of our interactions, knows everything about us, and he is always with us. He sees everything we do, all of our interactions. So notice Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. By the way, the you is emphatic all the way through here. Lord, you, you have searched me. You have known me. You know my sitting down and rising up. That last phrase is a Hebrew merism that represents or stands for all actions. Lord, you know everything I do. Even things as mundane as sitting down and standing up. But God not only knows our actions, he knows our thoughts as well. The middle of verse 2 says, You understand my thought afar off. 
And the idea in the Hebrew text is this. You understand my thoughts before they even reach me. Before I even grasp a thought, Lord, you already know what I'm going to think. God intercepts our thoughts, as it were, before they even materialize in our brains. That's how thorough and intimate God's knowledge of us is. He knows all our actions and all our thoughts, even before we think them. Jesus used this same idea to encourage his disciples in Matthew 10, when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered. The point is clear. God's interest in us, God's awareness of us, isn't just a passing thing. He is intimately acquainted with everything about us. Verse 3, he says, You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. The word acquainted in the Hebrew is the idea of intimately acquainted. Lord, you know what I do during the day, and you know when I lie down at the end of the day. You know everything. Verse 4, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. The psalmist is saying, Lord, you know where I've been. You know where I'm going. You know where I am right now because you have your hand on me right now. As the psalmist muses over the omniscience of God, he says in verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The Hebrew text begins like this. Too wonderful for me is such knowledge. Beloved, it's amazing to stop and try to grasp or try to contemplate the omniscience of God. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, His understanding no one can fathom. Job 37 16 says, He is perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in knowledge, which means a lot of things, but one, thing, one of the things it means is none of God's knowledge is learned or acquired. God can't learn anything because he is already perfect in knowledge. Psalm 147.4 says he knows how many stars there are, and he has a name for each one of them. You ever studied Astronomy? grappled with the number of stars in our universe? That's a mind-blowing statement, that God knows how many stars. He has a name for each one of them. Some of you can't even keep the names of your kids straight or your grandkids. And God knows every star and the name of every star. There's nothing God doesn't know. He knows everything and everyone, and he knows all things about everything and everyone. And this psalm says that includes you. And me. Then, as you continue through the psalm into verse 7, the theme changes from the omniscience of God to the omnipresence of God. Now, remember why we're going through this. This is the very thing that Paul uses in Philippians 4 to try to motivate us to think about our character, our graciousness or lack of it. The Lord is at hand, He sees, He knows, He's present. It's exactly what the psalmist says here. 
beginning in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The thought here isn't that the psalmist is trying to get away from God or he wants to get away from God. No, he is affirming the utter impossibility of being separated from God. He says in verse 8, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the grave, if, if, if I go down there, behold, you are there. Lord, if I ascend to the highest point in the universe, you're there. If I descend to the lowest point, you're there. And the obvious implication is that the Lord is present everywhere between. And in verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, that is a, a Hebrew expression that seems to be used for traveling, we would say today, like traveling at the speed of light. So you could almost, if you wanted to, you know, make this contemporary in its expression. Lord, if I traveled at 186,000 miles per second, I wouldn't be able to separate myself from you and your presence. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall hold me, and your, right, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. This is an encouraging presence the psalmist has in mind. It's a comforting, blessed presence, not a fearful one. He's not wanting to escape God's presence. He's not wanting to get away from God. He's rehearsing the fact that it is impossible to be separated from the presence of God. We don't ever have to fear that somehow we'll be separated from his presence. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Even in the pit of darkness, we are assured of the presence of God. God is present in every part of space with his whole being. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Do not I fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. God is everywhere. Now that doesn't mean, and you know this, that doesn't mean that God is present in the same sense everywhere, but he is present everywhere. He doesn't dwell on earth in the same way he dwells in heaven, but he's present everywhere. This causes some problems in the minds of some people. It, it, there are, there's sort of a barrier about this doctrine. So let me deal with a couple of issues that I know people grapple with often in relation to this doctrine. One objection to the omnipresence of God by some, at least in their minds, is that if God is everywhere, if he really is everywhere, then he is, he's impure because he is defiled by the impurity of the things that he is around. But the Bible teaches that although God is everywhere, he never mixes with any impurity. As an illustration, think of it this way. Think of the sun and its rays. The sun's rays, and pardon the illustration here, but it will make the point. The sun's rays may fall on a manure pile out in the pasture, but that manure pile never lays any of its defilement on the sun. So it is with God. He is everywhere, but sin's filth doesn't defile him because he doesn't mix with it. A second objection by some to the omnipresence of God is the fact that the Bible makes statements about God being in certain places at certain times. 
For example, the Bible speaks of God being near us or with us, and God is not with others, and he is far from them. How do we explain that? It's really not difficult when you understand the difference between the essence of God and his relations or how he relates. God is everywhere in his essence, but he specializes his presence in how he relates to people and places on the earth. That's why the Bible can make a statement like it does in Genesis 11, where it says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Obviously, God didn't have to come down from heaven to see the Tower of Babel. It just means God gave immediate and special attention to what was going on there. So God is everywhere, but he dwells in a special manner in certain places. It is this doctrine, the omnipresence of God, that Paul uses in Philippians 4 to motivate us and to buttress his command that we should be forbearing, gentle, and gracious. So what are some of the practical applications of this doctrine? Well, on the positive side, as we see here in this psalm, the omnipresence of God ought to be a great comfort to us. God is with us no matter where we are and no matter what we go through in life. That's what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 139. Basically, you could sum it up. God is with me. Psalm 23, 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6 say, The Lord is at hand, so be anxious for nothing. Romans 8 says, Once we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. That's a great source of encouragement and comfort. But there's a flip side of application. A second practical application of this doctrine is that it really ought to restrain us from sin and evil. I mean, we can't go somewhere and hide from God to get away with sin. That is foolish thinking, silly thinking. God is everywhere. If you go to a dark place somewhere to do something so no one will see you, Just remember that God is right there. He was already there before you got there. You can't hide from him. Everything you say and do, you say and do in the presence of God. Do you think about that very often? I was with someone recently, and they got upset about something and started swearing, and they said, and I have this happen a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're a minister. Sorry about that. And I thought, I started to say something, and they knew where I was going. What does it matter if I'm here? God's here. If that's not the way you're supposed to talk, then don't talk that way ever, regardless of whether I'm around you or not. Because God is. He's He's everywhere. You can't hide from him. Everything we say and do, we say and do in the presence of God. In Job 31.4, Job said, Does not he see my ways? Yes, he does. And that ought to be a motivating factor for holiness in our lives. And, and more pertinent to our text, it ought to be a motivating factor for gentleness and graciousness and forbearance and sensitivity. 
That's the application Paul makes in Philippians 4. The Lord sees and the Lord knows how you relate to other people and how you get along with other, other people and what your personality is like in relation to other people. He sees when you are abrasive or when you're insensitive, when you're sharp with your words or sharp with a cutting tongue, when you use harsh words, destructive words. He sees. He knows. He is at hand. He is near. So be gentle. Be sensitive. Be forbearing. Because the Lord is present and is watching. Was Paul gentle and sensitive? Well, the reason why I ask the question is because you probably know that there are a lot of people who don't think he was. A lot of people have a very bad view of Paul. Like he was some male chauvinist, harsh, unreasonable kind of person. So I asked the question, was Paul gentle and sensitive? He was. But because of his firm stand, he was sometimes accused of not being gentle. Let me show you what I mean. On your way back to Philippians 4, stop in 2 Corinthians 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. verse 10. Notice this is really a fascinating assessment, or maybe assessment's not the best word, accusation that the church at Corinth made in relation to Paul. He says, now let's back up uh, to verse 7 to get a running start. Verse 7, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For, and here's the key verse, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. You see what is going on here? The Corinthians accuse Paul of being strong and powerful in his instruction and teaching in his letters, but weak and a pushover when he was present with them. Why would they say that? I believe it was because Paul sought to be gentle and forbearing in person when he was with them. But when he took his pen to write a letter of instruction or more specifically, because of the way the Corinthians were behaving, when he was forced to take his pen and write a letter of instruction and rebuke, he did so with strong conviction and strong words. And it's a reminder that sometimes there is a different dynamic involved in relating to people one-on-one -on -one and instructing people in a large group. So Paul came across differently depending on the situation. But they were sort of using that against him. Like, Paul, you're two-faced. You know, when you're in person, you're pretty easygoing, but you write these letters, and man, they're just firm and strong and so forth. Now, not that I, not that I want to compare myself to Paul in any way, but, but I, 
I, I've had, I can relate to what is said here because through the years I've had many people say similar things to me. They'll say, you know, Brian, when you preach, you preach with strong conviction. And, but when you have a conversation with people, you're just pretty easygoing. What's, what's the deal? Well, part of it is because there is a different dynamic involved in relating to people one-on-one and instructing in, through a letter when a rebuke is necessary or in a large group setting. In those types of situations that Paul was sort of forced into by the Corinthians, he had to be firm in what he wrote, and even when he was with them and preaching and teaching, and yet he also wanted to be gentle in relating on a personal basis with people in, in a personal way. Now, I'm not implying, don't, don't take this the wrong way, that not that group instruction shouldn't be gentle and personal conversation shouldn't involve sharing strong convictions, But you understand that sometimes there is a different dynamic. So the Corinthians said, well, Paul, we can't really figure him out. He's, you know, he's so strong and powerful when he writes. But with us, it's like he's so gentle, he's weak and contemptible. But it does illustrate the point that Paul was gentle. He didn't give a command to the Philippians, be gentle, be gracious, and never exhibit that in his life because the Corinthians even used it against him. Now back to Philippians 4 as we wrap things up to our, to our text there. So in verse 5, Paul says, Let your gentleness, let your graciousness, let your forbearance, whatever term is in your translation, let this be known to all men. Notice that. Body of Christ people who differ with you, people who have a different theology, different perspective, people in the world, people who are in a different political party than you are in, people who are on the other side of the aisle. Now, this is where sometimes Christians don't think about their Christianity. They fail to realize that sometimes people who hold wrong views in life, and there are wrong views, like saying it's okay to kill a baby in the womb is wrong, period. I mean, that's wrong. But what happens is sometimes Christians, especially when it gets into the political arena, and they know that there are people who hold to wrong views, they begin to view those people as the enemy rather than the victims of the enemy. And when you see someone as the enemy, you can almost justify in your mind that you don't need to be gracious. You don't need to be gentle. And so Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all, to all. And remember, the Lord is at hand. He's right there. He watches your interactions. He sees. So don't be abrasive. Don't be a know-it-all. Don't be hard to get along with. Ask the Spirit of God to refine the rough edges off your personality. That's what the Spirit of God through Paul's pen is calling for here in verse 5. And let me just say this as as we sort of wrap it up and close. I was thinking as I was going through this and going through my notes and just keep working through this passage, I thought, you know, we don't, this is a generalization, but we probably don't put this on very high of a scale as that big of a deal. What I mean is, you know, if you were to ask just the average Christian, what do you think are five or six of the most important things in the Christian life that you make sure you do or don't do? You know, who knows what the list would be, but don't murder, you know, don't commit sexual immorality, don't lie, don't steal. But this one really, I don't know how many 
people would ever have this on their list. And so probably that's the reason why we don't take this as seriously as we ought to, because it's, we don't think it's that big of a deal. But this, it's obviously a really big deal, because Paul doesn't say to Yodi and Syntyche, you know, here they were causing division, and they were divided. He doesn't say to them, listen, ladies, get your act together. The Lord is at hand. But he does say that in relation to this command. And and throughout this letter, anything he says to them, he doesn't say, the Lord is at hand. That's, this is where that phrase appears. That's how important it is. So for Paul to try to motivate us that way, to say, listen, here's how you need to be. And remember, the Lord is right there watching you. Shows us that probably we should take this more seriously than we tend to take it. Because where else do you find Paul using that incentive, that motivation with a command? in the letter of Philippians, or anywhere else. So hopefully, hopefully that will ratchet up in our minds, in our hearts, what the Lord thinks of this. Let your gentleness, let your forbearance, let your graciousness be known to all men. Let's pray that the Lord would enable us to be that way. Father, as we close this message and close our time together, we want to confess to you, we want to confess as sin to you occasions when we interact with people, whether believers or unbelievers, when we are not gentle, when we are not gracious, when we are not modeling forbearance. As we just stop to contemplate this, I'm sure that every one of us in this room can think of times when we have failed to demonstrate this this character trait that is exhorted of us here in Philippians 4 5. So equip us, remind us, enable us to do this, to do what this verse says, to let our gentleness, our graciousness, our forbearance be known to all men, believers, unbelievers, people in the family of God who have a different conviction than we do about something, a different theological position. People in the world who have certainly different views on life and morality, politics, whatever the case may be, may we be reminded that we are to be gentle, gracious, forbearing, because we represent the one who said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is the one we represent. May we represent him well. And so we ask in his precious name. Amen.